Well, good morning, church family. It's so great to see you. How is everyone today? Doing well? Man, we are steamrolling through August. Can you believe it? And that means that school is right around the corner. Hard to believe. And uh, not surprisingly, or I guess in some ways it is surprising, that as school is approaching, we're still dealing with the ramifications of this pandemic. And, and many of us are scrambling to figure out what is school going to look like and how is it going to be different. And, is, and while I recognize that that's coming with different challenges and concerns for a lot of families and students and whatnot, uh, I would remind you that when we faced this on the front end in, in the spring and in March, there were a lot of challenges, yes, but a lot of good things that came of it as well. Some, some small, some significant, but, but there's definitely opportunities and things to look for. I, when I think back on the spring, some of the, the smaller things that I was really grateful for is I know when this quarantine started in March and we had to shut down schools and start doing everything at home, it kind of coincided with this time where Jennifer and I decided to give our kids new bikes. And so I will forever associate the beginning of this quarantine with the time that my kids just fell in love with riding bikes and just tearing off through our neighborhood and how fun that was. And we had a lot of additional time with neighbors, time as a family, a lot of family lunches because we were all together. And as we were adjusting to a new normal and a new schedule, a new routine, uh, one of the things that I decided to do for, for my crew is uh, I decided that I would be their PE teacher, right? Because now they were having to be physically active at home. And so I turned to my kids at one point in the front end of this quarantine. I said, all right, kids, uh, from here on out, uh, two days a week, you're, you're coming with me and you're going to work out with me. And I didn't really give them an option. They just kind of had to do it. And so when we started working this into our schedule, uh, Jennifer and I have this subscription beachbody.com. And I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it has all these different routines, like tons of them. And so you can download the app now on your TV. And, and when you pull it up, it's just got all these different options of ways that you can work out and be active. And so as we were bringing our kids into this, this new normal, we pulled up the menu option of all these different workout routines. And it's got all the different, you know, fit trainers and every, all their pictures up there. And my kids were just kind of marveling at all these pictures. Because you, you know what that looks like, right? Every routine has got the leader or the, the trainer on the cover and they're ripped out and they're looking at you with this intense look, like kind of insinuating, if you do this one, you're gonna look like me. And so they're, they're just marveling at, at these, these people, these men and these women that are just so fit. And as they were talking about it, I, I pointed out to them and I, I referenced the six pack. And they're, they had never heard that term before. And they said, well, what's a six pack? And I said, well, it's, it's the muscles in, in the abs. And I kind of counted it for them. I said, one, two, three, four, five, six. And they're like, oh, dad, when are you going to get your six pack? <laughs> Which was a pretty humbling question, I might add, to, to be asked. But I told my kids, you know, six packs are a lot easier to find in your 20s than in your almost 40s. And so I uh, didn't feel too much pressure uh, from them. But it was interesting to see them really kind of swept away in this image of strength, right? And that's typically what we think of when we think about strength. If I were to ask you what, do you, what do you often imagine when you hear that word, it tends to be muscles or somebody that's ripped out and fit and things along those lines. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of portrayals and manifestations of strength, right? We, we think about militaries or, or nations because we have movies upon movies of wars and battles and people demonstrating their strength and numbers as a nation. Uh, you often see it in terms of nature, Right? We see strength through natural disasters or through the, the, the torrents of rain or the gusts of wind and thunder and lightning. There's a lot of pictures that we often conjure up that associate with the word strength. Right? And today we get another picture. 
But this time it's through a biblical perspective. This time it's rooted in God's word and his truth. And my hope is that as we move through this, not just today, but really over the next several weeks, we get a reminder that strength truly is found in Christ. It's truly found in the gospel and in his church. So grab your Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter six. As we started saying a few weeks ago, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We will get you one. That goes not just for those of you that are in this room, but those of you at home. If you need a Bible, let us know. We'll be happy to get one to you. So we are nearing the end of our Ephesians journey. And all I mean by that is that we're in the last part of the scripture. We still got a lot to talk about, and we're going we're gonna to drag it out for the next several weeks. But we're in this last section. But I want to remind you of some of the things that we've talked about so far this year. Right, we started 2020 back in January talking about the power of God. And we looked at it through the lens of the calling of Moses, right? And how God was, was going to use Moses. And we had this numerous opportunities to look at the contrast between God's power and the power of man. And as we finished up that series, it got us to March, which was the start of the Lenten season, the Easter season. And that's when we started Ephesians. And the whole first half of, of our journey through Ephesians carried us through the season of Lent and up to Easter, where we really looked at the first three chapters and focused in on what God has done for us in Christ. And it reached that kind of culmination on Easter Sunday, that, that conclusion of chapter three, right? That God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And we, we had that emphasis on all that had been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And then we got on the other side of Easter, and we shifted focus in the second half of the letter where it became very practical. Here's how you live then, knowing what's been done for you in Christ Jesus. And we had conversations about unity and maturity, right? Putting off the old self, putting on the new self and having an opportunity to walk in the way of love, live as children of light. You had this, this call towards mutual submission. We've talked about what it looks like within the home. And now we're getting to kind of this final point of emphasis, this conclusion that Paul has written and in so doing, he gives us one final picture of strength. And so with that in mind and, and that journey, let's look at chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 10, reading through verse 13 this morning. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be, may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. So I love this section, right? Paul begins to awaken us to the armor of God. And, and that's really where we're going to be for the next several weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to slow it down. Today's kind of the introduction into this final series. But then each week, we're going to look at just one element of the armor of God. And it's going to take us through September. Uh, but the reason I want to slow it down is because I think this is such a critical part of the letter and such a powerful teaching. And, and what we have here, what, what's taking place here is this, this final conclusion. Paul even begins this statement with the word finally. Right? And, and what we see here is that that's an indicator, that's a clue that what he's doing is this, this literary technique of, of bringing all things into a conclusion, but doing so in a manner that is designed to uh, stir the emotions of the reader. Right? It, was, it was a literary technique that was common in this day, right? that I'm going to bring these things to conclusion, but I'm going to try to stir your emotions in the process. And the way that Paul is doing that is by using this imagery of a battle. 
right? The armor of God, this, this idea of war, right? That's what he's trying to, to tap into because with that imagery, he's creating a sense of urgency and confidence. And so that's kind of where I want to begin this morning is, is to ask you that question. Do you feel like you live your life and see your faith through the lens of urgency, right? Or would you say it's maybe a little bit more complacent? And the reason I think we can often fall into complacency is because one of the things the devil tries to trick us into is to convincing us there is no war. There is no fight. There is no battle, right? Just, just take it easy. Just kind of coast through life. And so Paul is trying to, to tap into that and awaken the reader to the urgency of the situation. But by eliciting this imagery of, of a battle scene in armor, he's not trying to stoke fear and concern, but confidence, right? Assurance. What, what we have here is that famous rallying cry that's in every war movie that's ever existed. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you watch a war movie, a battle scene, there's going to be a moment where the main character stands out in front of people and just inspires them to go fight, right? This is, this is Bill Pullman in Independence Day, acting as the president, standing in front of a bunch of ragtag you know, pilots and saying, we're not going to go quietly into the night. We will not vanquish without a fight. We will survive. We will live on. And we're going to celebrate our Independence Day. And everybody goes crazy and they go off and they beat the aliens, right? Or my favorite, Braveheart. Right, Mel Gibson comes riding out onto the scene and he sees this army and he sees that they're, they're afraid of the English troops. And so he asks them, are you going to fight? And one guy responds, he goes, no, we're going to run and we're going to live. And he says, hi, run and you'll live at least for a while, right? And then he continues on and he says, and dying on your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that, to have one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Are you guys ready to go fight? Right? I mean, it just inspires you, man. I love those. That's what's happening. That's what's happening here in this passage. Paul is trying to look at these readers and inspire them to respond to the urgency of the battle. Here's what he's saying. Everything that I've shared with you, what Christ has done for you, how you need to live your life, how you treat one another, how you work in the home is because of this inevitable battle of conflict against evil. You've got to be ready to fight. So that's what he's doing here. This this finality, this conclusion, this climactic moment, not just of a section, but of the entire Letter. And so what does he say? How does he begin to inspire these folks? He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So there's the picture of strength. He uses the word, be strong. Right? And, and a literal definition of that is to become able. And I think that's one of the reasons that we either give into fear or timidity or complacency is because a lot of times we convince ourselves we're not able. Right? I, I'm not capable of, of doing the things that God's asked me to do. I'm not capable of overcoming these challenges that are before me. I'm not capable of actually going out and, and taking on this challenge and this challenge and this one. And so we convince we're, ourselves we're not able, and that becomes a position of weakness. And Paul is saying, no, be strong, become able. Even more literally in this context, it actually means let yourself be strengthened, which is a reminder that this really isn't according to your abilities. It's not based on your aptitudes. Let yourself be strengthened. 
right? That takes us back to what we were talking about last week, that this is a, a posture and a lifestyle of surrender, right? And that, that what Paul is trying to really remind his readers of here is their position and the source of their strength. What is their position? Their position is that they belong to the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. What's the source? In his mighty power, right? It comes from him. And so part of what I want us to, to spend some time doing this morning is being reminded of the power of God, to be reminded of the strength that belongs to him. So when you search the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, we see at least two dominant images that to me encapsulate his power and his strength. When you're reading through the Old Testament, the dominant image seems to be the Exodus, right? It becomes the the, the foreshadowing of God's redemptive hand, but it is such a portrayal and, and manifestation of his strength that it is flooded in all the other prophets and the Psalms. It is the image that so many writers hearken back to, right? That's part of what we talked about in the calling of Moses, that, that God was foreshadowing this outpouring of power that he was about to display in redeeming his people. And so after the, the plagues and all those different signs, it culminates in this moment of the parting of the Red Sea and the complete annihilation of the armies of Egypt, right? And in that moment, you get to Exodus 15, and you see God's people celebrate his strength. We see them, oh man, I'll get that later. We see him celebrate his power. And so I'm going to read to you some excerpts from chapter 15, not all of it, but just a few verses that encapsulate it. 15 verse 1 says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Right, this is the image of God's power that becomes so thematic to his people. And then you move through the course of human history, you get to the arrival of Jesus, and all of a sudden this image of power transitions, not just from this mighty deliverance that we saw amongst kingdoms, but a mighty deliverance from sin. The new image is one of a suffering servant who is willing to sacrifice his life on the cross, and we see his victory and his triumph over the grave just three days later. So that becomes the declaration of power. And Paul has already tapped into that in his letter in Ephesians. Let me remind you of what he says in chapter one in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glory and inheritance and in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as his mighty strength, the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Be strong in the Lord. Let yourself be strengthened according to his mighty power. Right? That's that's the position and that's the source. Now look at how he continues. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So now with that calling towards being strengthened, he elicits this image of the armor of God, which is what we're going to go into great detail on over the next several weeks. Now, one of the things that I'll just say in terms of kind of an introduction is that the armor of God, what we'll discover, goes from head to toe, right? It is complete in its protection and in its need. It's both offensive and defensive in nature, right? And we're going to see elements of that this morning as well. But the, the theme that Paul really begins to introduce here is that we put on the armor of God. Why? So that we can take a stand, right? And that's a military term, right? That, that's a term that implies uh, holding your position against opposition and other forces, right? It, it's standing your ground. It's resisting those attacks. And so one of my questions for all of us this morning is, how is that going for you? Are you, in fact, standing your ground? It's a difficult question to answer because I think we have to really consider the way in which these attacks come and understand exactly what standing our ground looks like, which is part of what Paul is is kind of stirring within us and helping us understand with what follows. So the first thing that we really need to acknowledge in order to answer that question is a clearer understanding of who we're fighting against and who the enemy really is. So Paul calls him out. Right, that you're standing your ground against the devil. And as you read in the following verse, you get all these other descriptions, that it's not just the devil, it's, it's all the forces of evil that exist in, in the spiritual world, right? And so he gives these lists of powers and rules and authorities. And, and his main point is to create this distinction to say, your fight, your opposition, your stand is against those forces, not against flesh and blood. And yet so often, that's what we fall victim to, is convincing ourselves that our stand and our resistance and our opposition needs to be against someone else. And that's exactly what the devil wants. That's one of his schemes. That's one of his tactics. That that word scheme means strategies, but it it carries with it this connotation of deceitfulness or craftiness, right? It, It tells us that the devil is trying to level an attack that we won't see coming, Right? He's trying to trick us. He's trying to lead us astray. How does he do that? One of the main things he desires is dissension and disunity amongst mankind. When you go back to chapter 4, what does he say? He's saying, don't be angry with one another. Why? Because if you do, what's going to happen? You're going to give the devil a foothold. That's what he wants. Right? He wants to sow that dissension and that disharmony and that disunity amongst us. So when I look around our nation right now, I would say he's doing a really great job because a lot of us are caught up in animosity against flesh and blood. 
right? And we've drawn lines and we've picked sides and we've said, you're either with me or against me. And if you're against me, then I'm going to respond with uh, hate and animosity and resentment and grudges and all these different things. And that means we're not standing our ground. We're falling into his trap. You know, other ways that we can answer are we standing our ground is to reevaluate some of the other things that Paul has called us to through the course of this letter, right? Are you speaking the truth in love? Are you speaking it in resentment and hostility? Are you living a life of, of mutual submission, right? Will you consider other people's needs above your own? Or are you living a life more of entitlement and domination and, and arrogance? Like, like, how are you living your life, right? The more that we see that we're giving into a breakdown of the neighbor, right? And we're going against these things that, that Paul has called us to and God has called us to, then that means we're not standing our ground, but we are succumbing to the devil's schemes, right? So we have to know the enemy. Here's the point. You have to take the enemy seriously. If you're going to have a chance to fight, if you're going to have a chance at all to stand your ground, you have to understand who you're fighting against and take their tactics seriously, right? And so, so that's where Paul then kind of reiterates the necessity to stand. He continues on by saying, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm, right? And so he once again calls us to this notion of standing. But what I love about the second calling to it is that this is complementing the first. The first is really this idea of, of holding your ground, maintaining your position. The second term here that's being used for stand carries the connotation of, of being hostile towards, Right? And, and essentially what he's saying is, is don't just give up your position, but fight back. Right? That, that's part of what you're called to do is, is to fight back against the forces of evil and darkness and the devil's schemes. And that's a, a critical mentality for us to foster. I, I see this with my kids all the time. Um, I love wrestling with my kiddos. I feel like that's one of my fatherly obligations in life. Right? I need to wrestle with them. And it's fun to see how each one of my three kids respond to that time of wrestling differently. And James, my oldest, always cracks me up because every time I wrestle, he just, he just curls up and laughs, man. Like every single time, which is fun because it's hilarious to watch him laugh and it is, you know, good-natured fun that we're, we're trying to have. But there are moments where I'm like, James, fight back. <laughs> like, like literally, like go ahead, I, I can handle it. You know, like fight back. Because I want him to have that mentality that you don't just sit and take. Right? You don't just wait for, for all these things to come against you. You've got to have the mindset that I can fight back. And one of the reasons we need to have that mindset is because it's effective. It's effective, even from a military perspective. I, I was thinking about this, this theme of, of war and battle and, and how that was so relevant to this passage. And I thought maybe there's an example that we can draw from to try to drive this point home. And so I started researching and trying to remember some of the early beginnings of Rome's rise to power. And if you remember any part of ancient history, part of what you'll discover is that at that point in time, it was really kind of Rome and Carthage, right? Carthage had already established themselves as somewhat of a global force, but Rome was coming into their own. And they were starting to, to gain in confidence. They were starting to gain in prestige and power. And so Carthage levels an attack. And, and part of the way they do it is they have this, this general who's famous throughout history, Hannibal, Right? And, and Hannibal actually does this remarkable 
uh, unforeseen, unexpected move. He takes this vast army and they actually march through the Alps, <laughs> like with war elephants. There, there are, are comments that it was so narrow of a path, this entire army had to march single file. It took forever. It, many historians will look back on it and say it was crazy, right? Which is part of why Italy didn't see it coming, but it, it worked. So he crosses over into the Alps, and when he gets into Italian territory, he just starts having victory over victory over victory. And Hannibal becomes a name that strikes fear in the heart of every Roman citizen. And so what do they do? Do they just sit back and wait? Let him just keep conquering and and choosing the battle? No. You know what they do? They attack Carthage, right? So Scipio, the Roman general, goes into to Carthage, and they start having so much success that Hannibal has to retreat. They call him home for help, and as he comes back home, he loses so much of his resources as an army that made him so successful so that the point that he gets back, he's outmatched, and that it all culminates in this battle of Carthage where Carthage sees that they're outmatched, they offer terms of surrender, and Rome refuses the terms and completely annihilates them and pretty much extinguishes them and their culture from history. It was remarkable. That, to me, is part of the image that Paul's trying to create, right? The devil is going to take these unexpected paths and these journeys to try to to catch us off guard, and he's going to have successes. He's going to have victories. And so our job is not just to sit back and let him choose the battleground and let him choose the manner in which he wants to attack us, but we level an offense back at him. And when we do so, we can do so with the assurance of knowing that the ultimate victory belongs to our God and he will ultimately extinguish evil forever, right? That's, that's the reality of it all. So what does fighting back look like? It's being a force for good. I've said it for so many years, right? That following Christ is not about just abstaining from evil and resisting temptation. It's fighting for good, Right? So, so fighting back is fighting for the orphan, fighting for the widow, feeding the hungry, right? going into these moments of injustice and, and oppression and making a difference. That's why we've said so many times here that we're going to be a people who love justice. We're not going to just sit back and let the darkness dictate where the battle is waged and fought. We're going to level an offense as well. Right? So you fight back. Now, we know that the ultimate victory belongs to God, right? And that should give us assurance. That should give us confidence. But part of the reason we still fight, even though we know the victory belongs to us, is because we see that God wants all people to be saved. And right now, there are still prisoners of war that need to be set free. And so we fight for them. And we go with that voice of hope and that voice of redemption that sets people free. Right? That's what he's calling us to. Now, I also love the, the reality with which Paul kind of paints this picture. Because he uses this phrase. He says, when the day of evil comes. Right? Now, that's, that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? There's a, there's a couple of options. Let me suggest two of them to you this morning. One option would be that Paul is pointing to that climatic moment. Right? end time sort of moment, something we would read about in Revelation, that final battle between good and evil and Christ overcoming and vanquishing evil for all time. That could be what he's talking about. Another suggestion that I came across in my studies this week that that resonated with me on on a level as well that I think would be important for us to consider this morning is that the day of evil may not be referring to that ultimate climactic battle. 
it may be more personal. It, it may be something more individualistic where really what he's referring to is that in our own lives, it's that moment where the fighting fear feels the fiercest. It's our worst days. That day of evil where you just feel completely overwhelmed. You know what I'm talking about? See, some of us are in here today and we're dealing with complacency, right? Because we've convinced ourselves there is no fight. Some of us are in here today and we're fighting, but we're convinced we need to fight against flesh and blood. And we're just falling into the trap. But others of us, we're in here today and it feels like the day of evil is on our doorstep. And we're drowning in it. Right, we're drowning in the exhaustion. We're drowning in the depression. We're drowning in the loneliness. We're drowning in the grief. We're drowning in the addiction. You fill in the blank, but it feels like we're losing the fight. If that's you, this message is for your heart. He's saying, be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God and stand your in fact, do everything to stand. And that's how I would conclude this this morning, that, that phrase, do everything. Right? Don't just do some things, not just every once in a while, not just occasionally. Everything you have, stand your ground. And that connotation to everything is this idea of overcoming Right? It's understanding that you are going to overcome this day of evil. And so now you get a picture of what true strength looks like. It's overcoming that brutal divorce. It's the single mom who's figuring out how to get kids in school and put food on the table and, and educate and work all at the same time. It's the father that's dealing with false accusations and slander and broken families. Right? It's that young couple that's striving and pleading for a family and constantly being disappointed and constantly being heartbroken. It's that, that person that's trying to overcome grief because of a loss of a loved one. It's that person that's resisting the temptation to hit one more drink, to take one more hit or whatever it is. That's what true strength looks like. And so if you're in the midst of that drowning, be encouraged this morning. Stand your ground. Put on the armor of God. And once you do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to your right and to your left and realize you're not standing alone. <laughs> no, you're not standing alone at all. You are part of God's army. An army that truly spans across the globe from one corner to the next. And once you realize you're a part of the Lord's army, I want us to fight. I want us to go and be a light in a dark world. I want us to go and choose forgiveness rather than resentment. I want us to go and be a voice of hope rather than despair. Joy instead of sorrow, love instead of hate. I want us to see that we belong to the army of gods. We serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the battle belongs to him. We are his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can stand strong because we are his army. He is the king of kings. You want a picture of strength? It is Christ and the resurrection and his church. And that's where you belong. And that's who we are, the body of Christ. 
the church invincible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful for an opportunity to be reminded of your strength, to be reminded of your power this morning. God, for those of us that have fallen into complacency, awaken our hearts and ready us for the fight. Father, for those of us that carry a desire to fight, a desire to, to respond, but Father, we've, we've missed the mark and we're fighting the wrong things, often directed at people, warring against flesh and blood, harboring emotions of resentment and anger at people because they think differently or act differently or look differently or believe differently, God, we confess and repent of such a mindset. God, for those of us that are here today that are overwhelmed because it feels like the day of evil is at our door, strengthen us and encourage us. Help us to put on this armor and to stand firm, God, and let us do so as one, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, as your church, knowing that nothing will prevail against it because you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. We are your church, Father, and we stand for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.